Good morning. It's a privilege always for me to be in Stark Road, and uh, I am glad to be here and to share this weekend with my brethren in the ministry of the Word of God. I would like to change gears a little bit, and I hope that what I have to read and what I have to say will not take anything away from the very touching and tender and very timely ministry we have just heard from our brother Andrew. So would you turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians, and we'll read in chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse 2. First Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now turn over to chapter 5, if you would, please. This is the very serious Solemn passage dealing with a case that required discipline by the assembly. We'll just read from verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? For those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, chapter 14, if you would please. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we will break into this chapter in verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church... I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. 
And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now we look to God to help us as we look at this passage. Sometimes it is very valuable to go back and to review things that you may have believed, may have practiced for many years. And that is something that I have done with the subject that I want to look at today. The subject, because is really just that here in this audience today, there are quite a number of assemblies that are represented, local churches, probably in many, if not the majority. There would be the practice at the breaking of bread to have separate seating for those who are not members of that particular local church. That would be at the breaking of bread. That would be the a general practice among many of the assemblies, if not most of the assemblies that are represented here. So my simple question was, since I, that is what I have experienced all my life, I, I want to go back and I want to try and just erase my mind and go back and try to set aside any bias, set aside any preference I may have to try and honestly come to a conclusion Is that really a practice that is biblical? Is it a practice that is correct? It is a practice that is kind. Is it a practice that is consistent with the very character of our God? And so I want to try and look at this honestly. And I have come to the conclusion. I have come to the conclusion conclusion, that it is actually something that is right. It is biblical and it is kind. But I want to go through now the scriptures with you, and I ask you for, to follow along and to hear me out as we look at this subject together. Let me give you the first reason why it seems to me that this would be a proper, biblical, prescriptive practice that we follow. The first reason would be because of the very context. Here in verse 16 is where we have this expression in that what I have read, the place of the uninformed. The place of the uninformed. Look at that now in the context of the book of 1 Corinthians. The context of the book. Why we read at the very beginning to the church. It's not the club of God. It's not the society of God. It is is the church of God. And the whole word church, as most would know, means to call out. It means to be separated out. It implies a distinction. The church of God, which is at Corinth. But then you keep reading through the the book, and what do you come across? Well, you come to chapter 5, where we have read, and there is a discipline, a case of discipline. There has been a man who has had a moral fall, as we call it. He has committed moral sin, and as a result of that, there there is discipline that is to be carried out. And there is a distinction made, Because God will judge those who are outside. And our responsibility as a local church is to judge, is to judge those who are inside. And you heard it in our reading. That is in the text. The very clear distinction of inside and outside. And if you go to chapter 6, where they were taking people to law. Paul, if you take one of our modern versions, for example, that and in the version, the King James Version, I think it talks about those who are, who are least esteemed. But I think it really is the idea that you will find that those that have no standing, those who are outside, we go to those who, 
outside the church to resolve matters between brothers. Inside and outside. Listen to the very pronouns that Paul uses as he's writing to them. You recall that when he writes to them in chapter 1, he says, I hear that there are divisions. No, that's not what he says. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you in the church. When you come further in the book and you come to chapter 11, he says that there are many who are weak. There are many who are ill. But he adds this, among you in the assembly, very particularly pointing them out. And when it comes to the offering in chapter 16, again, he says that there should be a collection among you. He is pointing out, he is denoting the very clear, distinct entity that is marked with an inside and an out of a local church. The very figures that are used in this book. You recall that is the house of God, the field of God, the temple of God. When you think of a temple, do you think kind of like a, a fuzzy no, no, it's a very clear structure, isn't it? And when you think of a house, a house is not just a, just a, a broad area that you live. It's very distinct. It is a field marked out. All the figures point to a very clear, distinct entity when you come through this book. And if you go to the second letter to Corinthians, Paul makes it even, even clearer there. He says, what agreement? What agreement is there in chapter 6, he says, between a temple, a temple of idols, the, the, the idols and the temple of God? These things have not, they're very, very distinct. And then he calls them, he quotes and he says, therefore, come out and be separate. So just the very, con- would it surprise you then if you're looking in that context as you're going through the book, that you might find a clear physical distinction that is put on display in a gathering of the church. It would just be the natural thing when, you're, when you put it all together in its context, the context of the book, you will come to the conclusion, it, it does not mean there necessarily is going to be a physical place, but it shouldn't surprise us if we come to that at some point in the reading of this letter. But I want you to look now at the passage. <clears throat> Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this is in a section of the letter that deals with ecclesiastical issues. The very gathering of the church when they are together. Chapter 10 to chapter 14. And in this particular chapter, it's about the priorities, because they thought the Corinthians were thinking that the priority should be speaking in tongues. Wouldn't it be impressive to suddenly get up and get up and preach I often wish for this, and I think people who have listened to me would often wish that I had the gift of tongues when I stood up to just suddenly speak like a native speaker in Spanish. Or to suddenly get up and be able to speak Arabic or Japanese. Imagine that. Or to get up and pray and pray, not only only in French, but to pray in a particular dialect with the accent and all the vocabulary. Wouldn't that be impressive? That's what they thought. Paul says, no, there's something better than that. The point of this passage in in verse 1, he makes it very clear to them. He says, pursue love and desire. Desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. The very next to last verse says, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. There's something better than that. Your priorities are wrong, Corinthians. The most important thing is the communication of truth. Prophecy, preaching of truth. But then you'll notice in this passage, 
they're, they're, it's going to deal with their participation at the end. But there are really some sections in this book. He starts, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, where he talks about the connection when you're speaking. The connection. He talks about you don't connect. Not to all men in the first section. And to all men. And when you don't connect, you just edify yourself. But when you do connect, you edify the church. And then the next section goes from verse 6 down to verse 12. There it's about communication. So you read about words and you read about speaking six times and you read about languages four times and you read about everything that has to do with communication in that section. But where this verse is found is in the section that actually deals with comprehension. Seven times you'll get the word here in this words in this text that are translated understanding. So in the section where it's dealing with comprehension, he's going to bring up this subject of the place of the unlearned. Now, the place of the unlearned. He who occupies, well, that's the easy word. Occupies, it actually means, if you can believe it, it actually means to occupy. So we'll just skip that and go on to the next words. Occupies the place. Now, what does that mean? Well, now, 94 times in your New Testament, you will find this word taught us 94 times in your New Testament. 89 of those times, you can look it up yourself, 89 times it is referring to a place in space. It came to the place called Calvary. Peter was to take up his sword and he was put it in its place. And so if 89 of 94 times it's a physical place, what would you expect when you come to the word? Well, your first, your first instinct will be to think that it will refer to a physical place. How is it used in 1 Corinthians? In chapter 1, all them in every place, physical place in space, a geographical place that call on the name of the Lord. You see, it's, that's the way it's used. But you say, well, what about those other exceptions? Well, when you go through it, you'll find that four times, four times it is used of a, of, of a place, not in space, but a place in time. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 4. It's used about give no place to the devil when you're angry. Give no place. That's don't give him any time slot. Don't give him any opportunity. When it comes to giving a person a, a place for defense of themselves, that's an opportunity. It's a, a place in time. Does that work here? That we have the opportunity of the unlearned? It doesn't fit. You say, well, what about the possibility of a position? That he's in the position of the unlearned. That's the one time we haven't talked about. Acts chapter 1. You'll recall that there was the, that, that Matthias was, was chosen and he had to take the place that Judas set aside of his apostleship and ministry. Now, there it was a position, a position among the twelve. But is there any position of being unlearned? Well, that, that, whole, that doesn't even seem to make sense either. And so I would submit to you that the very word, and would be simply understood, would just be 
a physical place where the unlearned person is. In the gathering of the church, at this particular meeting, there is a physical place. The words themselves would lead us to that particular conclusion. But now, I want you to think with me about the next word. When it says that he is uninformed or unlearned, what does that mean? Well, obviously, translators have had a very difficult time with this. I went through some translations, and the New King James Version says uninformed. The Darby says simple Christian. The NASB says ungifted. The ESV says outsider. The NIV says inquirer. You can see that they've had a little difficulty with this. And who am I to solve this? Well, I just want you to think for a moment about how this word was used outside of the New Testament. It was used primarily, from what I can conclude in my research, three primary ways. The first would be, it was used to describe people who were non-members or non-participants. So when there was, for example, a political gathering, and it was going to be a political debate, there would be the the participants, the members that would be involved in that, and everybody else who came would be described as the uninformed, the unlearned. And the Greek word is, uh, and don't take this too literally transliteration or you're going to cause offense, idiotes. So the idiotes are those who are, they may actually know more than the people involved. They may, but they are non-members. They are not participating in the particular debate. It wasn't an offensive word. It was a common word that was used to describe non-members. But it was also used to describe those who were not skilled. So for example, Imagine, imagine an athlete, very skilled. And those who would go and watch an athlete, they would not have that skill, so they would be called idiotes. So that means this afternoon, out in the city of Ann Arbor, there will be 22 athletes on the field and 115,000 idiotes, right? Some of you are not from Michigan. You don't know what I just said. And they'll be gathered around. It's not offensive. It's just they don't have that skill, unskilled, non-member, unskilled. Or if you went, for example, and there was philosophy. Imagine some great minds of philosophy, and you don't really understand us all, and you go to listen to them speak. You're not speaking. No, no. Why not? I'm an idiotis. I'm ignorant. I'm uninformed. It's not a case of skill now. It's not a case of a member or non-member. It's a case of just a lack of information. And so you go to be informed as an idiotist. Now, what do we get when we come to the New Testament? You have the word used five times. One time in Acts Acts chapter chapter 5, you recall that they said about Peter and John that they were unlearned and ignorant idiotes men. What does that mean? Well, these men have not had all the education. They haven't sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Or some other great rabbi. They are lacking. You can just pick it up when they talk. They they have not been through a great... They don't have a lot of the information. Uninformed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Maybe he was taking up the criticism of the way he spoke. He says, I'm not skilled in public speaking. He wasn't skilled in his speaking. That's a skill. So you say, now when we come to the other three times the word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, what is it here? Non-member, uninformed, or unskilled? Well, now we're going to have to look at the passage, and we'll have to figure this out. 
There are those that will tell you, and many commentaries, surprisingly, will just simply say, this is the person who was unskilled in speaking in the tongues. But I wonder whether they really under, we understand what speaking in tongues was. What it would be would be something like this. Just imagine for a moment that Brother Andrew gets up tomorrow morning at the breaking of bread, and he is able suddenly to worship. He's able to worship in Swahili. Perfect Swahili. You say, well, Brother Phil, he gets up and he can speak. He gets up and he worships in Malagasy. Well, he has a tongue. And he has it. But are they going to understand? It's not a case of not having a tongue or having ability to speak in tongues. You say, well, what if Andrew had the ability to speak in Swahili and Brother Phil could speak in Swahili? You say, well, then they... No, they would still be unlearned. Because just because you spoke in the language did not mean you understood it. You would have two men speaking in Swahili and neither of them would understand what they were speaking. That would be extremely useful if it were Malagasy and there were lots of Malagasians here today from Madagascar. Or if there were a lot of folks here from Kenya or Uganda or Tanzania and our brothers would preach in, preach in Swahili. Even if they didn't understand, it wouldn't matter. The important thing is that the audience would understand it. And so the issue here is not whether they had an ability to speak in some tongue or the ability to speak in the same tongue. It's an issue of understanding in this section, of comprehension. And so this is not about a skill that the unlearned or the unskilled does not have. You say, well, what about it? Does it mean that they're uninformed about understanding the tongue that is being spoken? The language that is being spoken. That can't be either. Here's why. Obviously, the church doesn't understand it. That's why Paul says, if you, you, you got to pray for, you got to pray for interpretability to interpret it. You don't need to do that if everybody understood it. Obviously, the church doesn't understand the language. And obviously, the speaker doesn't understand it because he has to pray for interpretation. And so this person doesn't understand it either. Why? So that the one who doesn't understand is speaking to those who don't understand. So that the other person can be in a special place that they don't understand. That just seems pretty confusing and redundant and unnecessary to me. That's not what this is saying. Obviously, this is referring to people who are in a place who are... Is it that they're not members? Is there something they don't understand? Is there really that distinction? Follow with me down the passage now. Come to verse 17. Look what it says. Verse 17. We read this together. Paul says, For you indeed give thanks, when you're speaking in whatever language it is, well, but the other, the other is not edified. Other, other. That is a word that means another who is different. There's a different kind. It's not just distinct. That's, there's some difference here between the person who is speaking and the, this unlearned person. But we don't know what that is yet, so let's just keep going. You come to verse 19. Paul says in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others. Now that's others who are of the same kind. In other words, Paul says in the church, now I'm speaking to others. Well, what, what of the same kind? Well, it's not that they don't understand the language. We've seen that nobody understands it. 
There is something he has in common with those who are in the church that the person who is uninformed does not have with the church. Keep reading. We'll find out what that is. Come down to verse 24. There he says very clearly, he says, now, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. There you have it. He has just covered in the verses before that. He has spoken of the church. He has spoken of the uninformed or the unlearned. And he has spoken of the unbelievers. And now he brings them all together. He says the whole church is together, not, not just in the city. They're actually gathered together in one place. The whole church. And in come two people. Number one, it's the unlearned or the uninformed. Number two, it's an unbeliever. What do we learn about that? First thing I learn is the unbeliever and the unlearned are not part of the whole church because the whole church is already together. Therefore, they are non-members. Fair conclusion? What else do we learn? We learn, obviously, that the unlearned is not an unbeliever. Otherwise, there would be no need to distinguish them. They are unlearned, but obviously they are believers. And so now, when we look at this, we come to the conclusion that there is a very... I came to the conclusion that there is a physical place, place in space, where they are, who is there. We are told it is the uninformed. Those who are believers, but they are not they, they are not members. So now, what is it? Why is they called unlearned or uninformed? Is there anything else they don't understand? What's the difference between them and those who are actually members of the church? Keep reading. It goes on to say, verse 25. It says in verse 24 that if they, they, these ones come in and they hear somebody speaking in a tongue, they're going to think you're crazy. Loco. They speak in a foreign language. Then verse 25. Look what it says. I'm sorry. Uh, verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever and uninformed person comes in, look what happens. He is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. The truth that is communicated has such an impact on him that he realizes he is wrong in his thinking. And the evidence is accumulated until he is convinced of the truth. And then what happens? It says he falls down on his face. What does it say in verse 26? Verse 25, rather. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. Where he, what his thinking really was, where he was wrong in his thinking, what he had in mind, what his conviction was, he falls down on his face and he will worship God and report that God is truly... Notice what he says. He doesn't say God is truly among us. God is truly among you. He's not part of it. He's a non-member. And he's looking on, he's observing. And as he hears the truth and he sees truth being practiced, he comes. You say, well, what would happen if that was a person who was unbeliever? Be a person who would come to a truth and would realize. Like Jacob did when he realized that God, God is in this place. He realized his sin, his error. What would a person who, they would realize, I, I, I have been lacking information. I now understand the truth has convinced me about the special presence of God in this place, that this is where the presence of the Lord is. 
Now, does that agree with what a New Testament gathering at a breaking of bread is happening? We celebrate that where two or three are gathered together in my name, the Lord Jesus said, there am I in the midst of them. And so you look at it and you say, the context of the book shouldn't surprise us. The very teaching of the passage actually leads us to that. You say, well, what about the norm in society? Well, I've kind of alluded to this already. You see, there would be pagans, and they would go to their pagan temple in Corinth, and they would be very accustomed to this. They would think nothing of of a separation among people who were worshipers at the temple, the pagan temple. There would be the idiotes there, and there would be the participants. There would be the people who were the ones who had, had greater understanding. It would just be a common concept to them. They wouldn't be shocked at this. They wouldn't call out this as discrimination. It would actually be expected. What about the Jewish believers? Why, they have excavated and found in Corinth a synagogue. When they went to the synagogue, what was the Jewish experience? Why, when they went to the temple, there was the, there was the, there was the place where only the priests could be. And there was the hall of the Israelites, the place where the men could be. And then there was the court of the Gentiles. And then there was the court of the women. And so for them to come to an assembly gathering... The mindset would just be, why, we assume there will be differences. That would be expected. The norm in their cultural and and their experience at that time would all be fit with this completely. It would be perfectly normal. And so you say, well, it's not really taught, prescribed that this is something we have to do. It's actually assumed that we're actually doing it. It's so considered normal that it's just assumed. Of course you would do this. You would have separate place for those who are unbelievers and those who are un... You say, well, why are they... Why does he pick them out? Well, recall when the Lord Jesus gave teaching in Matthew chapter 18 and in the Gospels, he talked about causing offense. Who did he use for an offense? He picked out the most vulnerable. He talked about the youngest, the children. Take them into consideration. It's not offense here. It's information. Who is the one that is lacking information about the presence of God in this place? It's not an insult. It's not an insult at all. It's actually a blessing for them. We really want you to understand. We should be appreciating that in the gathering, the Lord is here. His presence. The presence of the Lord Jesus. And so does it fit with the rest of the teaching, even in this book and other books about the the reception, the practice of reception of why the letters and the people were added? And yes, it does. Of course it does. It all fits together and all indications point to the assumption that Paul is making that there will be and the gathering of the assembly. There will be a place for the uninformed. But now let me just go for a moment and ask you a question about this. Some of the objections and concerns that sincerely are given. One is that this might just be, well, what about this? Is this just a cultural experience? Was this a particular problem there? And we can kind of come to it as we're driving through 1 Corinthians and look out the window, slow up a little bit, and then hit the gas and keep going because it really doesn't have anything to do with us. We'll go through 1 Corinthians. Listen to some of these words. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 17, he talks about what I teach everywhere in every church. Chapter 7, verse 17, so I ordain in all the churches. Chapter 11, verse 16, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. 
Here in this chapter, verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches. It's all about, this is for all churches. This is the assumption. This is not some local, regional issue. This is a practice that fits for all churches. But you say, well, now, there, is though, there are those who would say, well, this is actually a hypothetical situation. And you can't, in verse 24, it says that, it says very clearly here, I'm sorry, verse 23, if the whole church comes, you can't base a practice on a hypothetical. Actually, in this passage, there are 11 They're called third-class conditional sentences. There's 11 of them here. 11 if then. If you're going to excise one, you've got to get rid of them all. You can't use any of them if you're not going to use this one. A hypothetical does not... It's just bringing a reality. And in fact, third-class conditional, that's the only reason I mention it, is because it means that there's a a probability that this could actually happen. That all the church could be in one place. And that all who speak are prophesying. Or all who speak are are speaking in tongues. That's very possible. And it's all possible that an unbeliever could come in. I hope so. Maybe we need to pray for that more. It's all possible. In fact, it may have happened. Whether it happened or not, we don't know. What we know that it likely could happen. That's the very idea that you have here. So dismiss this because there are hypotheticals. If then would not be appropriate when dealing with a chapter as a whole. But now, what quickly, I just want to mention the idea. Some would say, well, why do we say practice this at the breaking of bread, and why do we not practice it at a ministry meeting? Well, again, when they gather together, right? Verse 23. Where do you find that in 1 Corinthians? You only find that in chapter 11, where the teaching is about the breaking of bread. So their minds are already thinking about the breaking of bread meeting. He hasn't mentioned any other meetings. Chapter 16, where this takes place, what is he talking about? He's not really talking so much about prophecy. He's actually talking about blessing and giving thanks. Has he ever talked about that earlier in 1 Corinthians? Chapter 11. Giving thanks for the bread. Blessing. and Thanksgiving. You see, that would be the mind. This is the breaking of bread that he's thinking about. And then when you come to this in chapter 10, he has talked there about, about the very teaching, the very teaching about the bread and the wine. Well, actually, he speaks about the wine, the symbol of the blood of Christ by which we enter into fellowship. And then there is that loaf, the bread. He speaks about that secondly, because that's about the existence of unity. And so we have a symbol of unity at the break, a physical representation, a physical symbol that speaks not only of the body of the Lord Jesus, but of the unity among believers. So would you be surprised then that in the very context of the breaking of bread, that's where he is assuming that there is going to be a place for the uninformed? Is it consistent with the character of God? Just keep reading down the chapter. God is not the author of confusion. Let all things be done decently and in order. God is a God of order and God is... You say, but it's very difficult. And I understand this. It happens all very frequently where I'm from in West Phoenix. We invite believers out. I'm talking believers now. 
And they're used to participating and they come to the assembly meeting and you want to win them to truth and you want them to understand. And then you say, oh, we're so glad for coming. Go sit over there. Maybe that's happened to some of you here. And you're here and you're wondering, why did that? What's going on? Why, why, why? Is that really, after all, is that loving? Is that showing the very character of God? Let me ask you, is it unkind to make believers understand that they're unbelievers? Uh, unbelievers understand they're unbelievers? That would be one of the kindest things we could do for them. Their souls are in danger. Kindly, gently help them to realize there is a distinction. Would it be unkind and unloving to make a person who hasn't come to appreciate the presence of the Lord Jesus and the tremendous significance of that to help them to understand that there is a difference? To give them the opportunity to come and to observe where they don't feel the pressure to participate when they can just analyze, observe, evaluate, compare with Scripture and ask questions afterwards? You know, just because we don't know how to package it and how to present it and how... If we presented it to people, they would feel, oh, okay, I can go. And I don't, they're not going to be reaching for my wallet. And they're not going to be expecting me to do anything. And I can come in. You just come and you watch, evaluate. And if it so is convinces you that what we're doing is biblical, and that you observe and see what you think, and it's how we present it to people. I have seen how people come in. And they come in and they watch and they observe and they go away. And I have seen believers. Maybe there's some here today. And they have said thanks for having this. Because I'm very intimidated. Based on the experiences where I have gone. And they have forced me to try and come to a front. And forced me to give money. And they have forced me to participate. Just to be able to come. And just evaluate things with an open Bible. May God help us not to take this practice in any way. God, May God forbid it. Somehow we think we're superior. This is not superiority. But somehow, this is not a fear issue. We don't want them in. This is actually an issue of love. They could not be in a better place to understand, to appreciate. And oh, that we would cherish this for the good of unbelievers. For the good of believers who are in the process of learning about what an local church is for the good of the assembly and for the protection and for the glory of the name to which we gather, the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ.